Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by elder in training Jeremy Lai. He's preaching from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. All right, well, so as I was saying, uh, I want to focus on the we today, the we of our church, the we of people. As we all know, community is a core value of everybody. The extroverts, the introverts, the lone wolves out there. We all need people, whether we like to think of it or not. And here below, we want to kind of provide that. We want to provide relational ministry with fellowship, whether it's our small groups, our Sunday services, our church-wide social events, our community service events, and as Abe talked about last week, the missions that we do. I like what Abe said two weeks ago when he said, church is not a silent disco. Christianity is an active community in Christ, representing who God is and his love for us. So, um, A likes to keep things short, so I'll try to emulate his uh, example. So let's dive into it. In Ephesians here. So for a little context, Ephesians was a letter written by Paul from prison. It addresses some overarching themes for the growing church, and unlike all his other letters, doesn't really speak to a specific problem or a specific person. Ephesus itself was a Roman administrative capital probably the second largest, second most important city in the empire after Rome. There's a mixing of trade and business, lots of people, groups, and cultures, religions. The Temple of Artemis, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, was here as well. Look at Ephesians. Ephesians 1 is an opening blessing, a prayer, thanksgiving to those receiving the letter and listening to it. First half of Ephesians 2 is a summary of the gospel message. In Ephesians 2, the second half is a foundational exhortation of a community in faith and, importantly, a reconciliation of people. We'll look into this in three parts. So I know Hannah already read for us, but I'm going to read this again just to kind of help really instill the word in us. So Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's an interesting way to open any kind of letter or section of a letter. For those of you who don't know, uh, I did medical residency here. I am a urologist by training. For those of you who don't know what that is, in urology, we basically function as you know, plumbers of the human body. We deal with kidney stones, kidney cancer, bladder, prostate issues. You pee too much, you can't pee, we help with that. We also help with uh, some penile scrotal conditions, testes cancer, what happens when the Viagra works too long, stuff like that. <laughs> and we also, do, we also do circumcisions. Abe, when he gave me this passage to speak on, did not know that I did that. <laughs> so whether it's by chance, ignorance, or divine providence, here I am, a medical and surgical expert on circumcisions talking about the spiritual aspect of circumcisions. Circumcision was a physical sign of a covenant between God and his people. Which kind of begs the question, why would God, if we know and think of him as someone loving and welcoming, choose to exclude certain groups? Why is there a separation? And I think it's important to look back at the example of the Bible across the whole New, Old and New Testament. And that God's people were and are always meant to be set apart from the world. And we are meant to set an example of who God is to the world. 
If you look at the narrative arc of the Old Testament, and this could really be its own sermon series for years, we look at all the details and the stories from Abraham's journey, the location of the promised land, the contrast of the Israelites and the people of God versus the other nation groups around. You see that God gave Israelites the laws of radical generosity and giving. You'll see a nation of priests serving God rather than a nation of kings. There's a whole thread of trusting the Lord's providence versus being like the other um, countries in the area that focus more on conquest and imperialism. It's important to read the Bible in its entirety. Otherwise, it becomes easy to forget or simply not notice that the redemption narrative of the Bible, of God and for his people, was always intended to include all of humanity. So that brings me to my first question for all of us here. How are we as beloved set apart as a community of Christ today? If you look at the American church today, attendance has plummeted. There are probably at least 40 million fewer people attending church today than 10, 15, 20 years ago. And from within church, it's easy to kind of critique our society as being individualistic, focused on commercial success or whatever success. We lack mutuality, common life. I was in Asia this past, uh, past month, traveling in Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, and it's just so different how people there treat like public transit and common spaces. It's clean, it's orderly. You come to America, it's a bit of a reverse culture shock. And it's easy, us, easy for us to critique that. But is a church and are we that different? As a church, we've gone through, you know, I'm talking about kind of globally and just here nationally, we reckoning with church scandals, abuse, leadership problems, narcissism, pride. And so this sermon series this month is a reminder of our values as beloved, as a church of Christ. Because if we are not a different kind of community, then there is no reason for anyone to come or be drawn to our church. But if we are a different kind of community, set apart an example of Christ, look back at the passage here, Paul says, remember when you were alienated and strangers. He's asking these new non-Jewish converts to recall when they did not know of this God, when they had no hope. We have to remember, too, back in the Greco-Roman society, our God would have come off as so different than all the other deities that they worship at the time. Our faith is monotheistic. It's non-thematic, meaning it's not associated with an element or an aspect of, of humanity. The Temple Artemis, for example, was a temple for fertility. And most importantly, our God was sacrificial in service. And this new God, as presented to the Ephesians, the Roman Empire, and religion, was also associated with a historical narrative of promises and, critically, a community of people. You can imagine if you were in Ephesus and you saw the kind of practical socio-religious appropriation of the Roman Empire, polytheism. So the Greeks and the Romans, as they conquered uh, places and peoples, they would layer religious practices on top of each other. Temple Artemis, for example, predates the Greeks and was a holy site for the people there before them. The practice of Greek uh, syncretism. Later in Acts, we see how Paul addresses all the different idols that the Greeks have set up, including one to the unknown god. Here in this time, the people also venerated living and dead people as deities. Ephesus was a center of emperor worship. There were at least three temples there that were dedicated just worshiping the emperor. And you can see how this would be a practical way of maintaining control over people groups. And so you see this in contrast to our faith, which is generational, thousands of years, and associated with a community of people. And you see how this could be appealing to a city like Ephesus and to a city like Chicago. 
So we turn back to the question, how are we set apart as a community today? How are we set apart in our own world of polytheism, of capitalism, financialism, cultural success, beauty, influencers, security, so on and so forth? Do we not also venerate living and dead people today with how we treat celebrities and billionaires and so on and so forth? Are we so different? And so these first two verses kind of provide the historical um, and your logic set up to illustrate what a new community in Christ is meant to be. So we look at, back at Ephesians again, the second section, verses 13 through 18. But now in Christ Jesus, you once, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Being circumcised in the physical symbol doesn't matter anymore. Instead of our bodies being cut, we have the blood of Christ breaking down the wall of hostility in his flesh. There's a new man, and the, uh, the word for this in the Greek is gender neutral, so we talk about a new humanity together. And I love that peace is brought up multiple times in this, in this section. But I do want to turn our attention to the phrase wall of hostility. It kind of caught my eye when I was reading this passage. We've got to remember that Jewish law separated Jews from, non, from non-Jews. This is often used as a source of righteousness. And we see Jesus address this in the New Testament to the Pharisees and spiritual leaders of the time. There's also a literal barrier in the temple separating Jewish men, Jewish women, and Gentiles could not worship together. Now, this temple was destroyed in 70 AD, about 10 years after this letter. So this imagery of a wall, of a barrier, would have been a reference that the Christians here would have understood. Paul was also literally in prison under false accusations for bringing a Gentile into the Jewish section of the temple. So let's bring me to my next point, that setting ourselves apart as a community without Jesus is dangerous and counterproductive as a church. I think we do do this in a modern-day context. Do we create rules and laws that make us feel superior to others? Worse, do we use the precepts given to us in the Bible for our own prideful behaviors? It is human nature to create others, to make ourselves you know, feel like a better of ourselves, and church is often no different. I'll tell you a story. When I was in high school, um, I dated this girl. She went to a different church in L.A. It's around 2005, around Hurricane Katrina, right? The hurricane came through, you know, laid waste to the city, tens of thousands of people had to evacuate, lots of homes destroyed. Even now, almost 20 years later, the city is still recovering. And at this church, uh, this girl told me that people at the church were saying how the city of New Orleans deserved it because it was a city of sin. And putting aside how absurd that is, you can imagine why this girl, now woman, never went back to church and hasn't been back since. And I pray that, beloved, we are not set apart in that way. That we remember that we are meant to come, like Jesus did, via his arrival, his death, his resurrection, to break down these walls and abolish or complete the law. We have a second, in this passage, a second physical and culturally understood symbol of separation that is addressed as Jesus did, to kill hostility, to create unity of people in one body in the cross. 
And so the question for us then is, do we as beloved, do we also kill hostility through reconciliation with God and each other? And hostility can look different for everyone here. In verse 17, it talks about peace to those far and near. And it's a nice reference to Isaiah in the Old Testament, 57, 19. Whereas Isaiah says, peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Again, it's a reference to God's narrative across the whole Bible, the Old Testament, to include everyone in his story, the near and the far. Everyone has access to this reconciliation and this peace. As we look back to the passage in Ephesians 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul brings up aliens and strangers again. But this time, he's talking about how now we are citizens as part of the household of God. Citizenship was prized in the Roman Empire. It gave you civil and legal rights, as we see elsewhere in the Bible in the New Testament, where Paul leverages his status as a citizen to go to Rome. It gave you social capital and inspired loyalty to a greater community. So it's a readily understood analogy for the listeners of this letter, because not everyone in Ephesus would have had citizenship. Even though it was the largest, second largest city in the empire, probably only a minority who are actually citizens. And so Paul here is emphasizing the new and complete belonging in our faith as citizens in the household of God. And every household community needs a foundation. Right here and below, we have our own little communities within our community. We have people who bond over food and cooking. Uh, we have people who bond over music. I know many of us went to this summer with what, T-Swift, uh, Ed Sheeran, Beyonce, Lala, Blackpink. Like, some of you went to all of that. It was great. Some of us here bond over physical activity. We have golfers, we have runners. I think there are five people running the marathon this, this fall at some point. We have people here who bond over their careers. We have people in healthcare, law, education, software, tech, marketing, so on and so forth. Church is no different. But again, if we are to be set apart differently, then Jesus needs to be our cornerstone. Not Jewish law, not old law, not Ephesian, Greco-Roman, American customs or culture. And notice here in the passage, Paul mentions the foundation of, of apostles and prophets. Again, emphasizing that our faith is a generational one, spans millennia, and we belong to something so much bigger than ourselves. Every household community also needs a purpose. And the purpose of this community of church, per Paul here, is to be built together into a dwelling place for God. Why a dwelling place? It's not about a physical building or temple anymore. Remember, no more walls. Christian community is where now where God resides. Where we gather as people, that's where God is. We could spend a lot more time looking into Paul's words in Ephesus, and really anything, anything Paul writes, you could spend hours and hours on. We'll take a time, we'll kind of uh, move on a little bit here. So a couple of considerations for us as, as church. Two considerations, and we'll label them as the near and the far, going back to the reference to Isaiah and the passage here. The near is for us. Right, and I want to emphasize again, for us, is to recognize Jesus as the cornerstone of our community. Now, that may seem kind of self-explanatory, right? Like, duh, we're Christians, we follow Christ. But it doesn't mean we don't need constant reminders of this crucial fact. Church community here is not just about life lessons, worship, social events, not about feeling good or sad, finding friends, being with your friends. Those are all good things. 
ultimately this is not what this is about. We exist and are here to reflect and be reminded of his love and sacrifice. Our Sunday services, our community groups, our discipleship, relationships here, they should all, our activities should be point us towards and bind us to our cornerstone and allow God to dwell with us. So as beloved, do we empower and refresh our members in Jesus? As Paul says, in whom the whole structure, church, grows into a holy temple. That's an active process. Are we growing together? It's a transformative process. Are we becoming a holy temple? And we want to do this because as we grow with Jesus, we want to do the far that's mentioned here in the passage. As beloved, we want to represent a new humanity and make peace with people. And this feels kind of by the questions, like sometimes it may feel a little, little fruitless, right? Why faith? Do non-Christians even care? Do they even want to be a part of our story? This congregation is a lot of millennials and Gen Zs. 55% of millennials don't believe in God. For Gen Z, that's 70%. But I believe that in our faith, in our God, and in Jesus' story is a generational belief. It crosses time, location, class, ethnicity, nationality, activities, whatever. People will always want community, and they're going to seek it in things. But most things that we seek it in are going to be fleeting or just don't make sense across time and space. Example, imagine if you took all the runners in this, in this congregation, took them back in time, put them in Ephesus, and we're like, hey, want to join our community? We're going to run 26 miles in two months with 40,000 other people. We do this every year for the last 45 years. They're going to think you're crazy. People in this room already think you're crazy. Right? So our activities are fleeting, and they, they may not translate. And no matter how successful we are in this society, you have the best job, the best academic prestige, or whatever, whatever, we will always long for something more and bigger than ourselves to belong. And as Paul shows in his writings, now Christianity spread through his time, and now people will be drawn to the idea of a permanent community. Community also provides faith and uh, hope and purpose. As we all know, life can be hard, and having hope and optimism can help. Even on a secular basis, we know this. Through the cancer literature, the survivorship, people with cancer or terminal illnesses, if they have something to look forward to, a son or a daughter's birthday, some milestone, they live longer. They do better. It's the same for religion as well. It's interesting, there have been multiple studies across multiple groups of people, multiple parts of like locations and time, People who attend religious services live longer. Now, of course, all survey studies are a little bit biased, right? But the fact that they've been replicated so many times does say something about it. And something consistently across these surveys says that people who attend services regularly have more hope, have more optimism. Let me give you an example of that as well. Back, for those of you who are alive and um, remember the turn of the millennia, so <laughs> I know a lot of people who are very young here. Um, so if you look at mortality statistics, and you compare the month of December 99, fewer people died in the last few days of that year compared to the 1998, 2001, 2002, and so on and so forth. Why? People wanted to make it to new millennia. And they were willing, or they could, I guess, literally will themselves to make it a few more days. It's kind of crazy. But that's what hope can do. So how much more would people live life if they knew the hope of Jesus and were part of a growing and holy temple? 
I pray that Belov is a community that is noticeably set apart from the world and holds and teaches that kind of love and hope. Are we a part of the gospel story and through Jesus' example, the redemption story of mankind? Again, I want to emphasize, it is totally okay if you are here for whatever reason. You're here for the sermon, you're here for the life lesson, you're here for your friends to feel good or sad or whatever it may be. We welcome you here for whatever reason you're here. But I hope that as we become part of this community, that we are challenged to welcome those in society and that customs tell us to think differently of, that we're challenged to love those who are hard to love, no matter the reason. That we go out there and make peace as a church. Because here in our Ephesus, do we show our world something different? I'm going to ask the band to come back up. One more time, our mission statement. We exist to see the gospel transform people into spirit-filled disciples who know they are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. Why don't we pray real quick? Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.